Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. I'd like to start this discussion with an extract from an article on the Naked Scientists website. Death unites humanity. No matter your walk of life, you will die. It is perhaps the only fact that is truly universally acknowledged. It might shock you then that death does not unite species. Examples of immortality litter the animal and plant kingdoms. There is no single unifying factor. Size, environment and life cycle seem to have had no impact on the evolution of immortality. Teratopsis nutricula, a tiny species of jellyfish and distantly related freshwater hydra, are biologically immortal. This means that they can theoretically live forever, but in reality will probably die from predation. Planarian flatworms are considered immortal under the edge of a knife. You can cut them into nearly 300 fragments and still each piece will regenerate an entirely new organism. That was science journalist Alexander Ashcroft. Fascinating to hear that some creatures are biologically immortal. Whether they have any consciousness of this gift is unknown and frankly unlikely. In any case, it wouldn't help us poor human beings destined as we are to die. But how should we die? Can we plan or hope for a good death? Not if we're knocked over by a car, that's for sure. But a whole battery of medical advances mean that life can be prolonged as never before. Is this the right way to go? Or could this resource be better deployed in other areas of medicine? With me to discuss these grave matters are Laura Davis, Fellow of King's College Cambridge and leader of A Good Death Project, Atif Imtiaz from the Muslim Charities Forum, and Mark Stobot, Lead Chaplain at Cambridge University Hospitals. Welcome all. Thank you. Thank you. Mark, what makes a good death in your experience? For some, I guess, good death would be um, where just the lights go out. Others, it's something... I guess you planned for. I, I I was on my bike the other week. I fell off and I found I was at one minute I was upright, the next minute I'm scrambling around in the bushes, and it got me thinking about another patient I was looking after who uh, actually sadly died. But it, something similar happened. It made it, the parallel quite interesting because I wondered then if that was what dying was. Suddenly the lights going out because I had no warning, and I have no memory of it. For my family, that would be absolutely, utterly tragic. I would know nothing about it. Now, I've been with other people where the death has been something planned, and my mother's death was one in which it was a, it was beautiful to be part of. Um, I was with a gentleman the other night, and I sat with him, and sort of holding him in his death, and literally using my hands to, to sort of encapsulate that as I cupped my hands the right moment to hold him and then at the right moment, I was just led to open my hands and let him go. And he died. I guess, for me, that was a good death. Although his wife might think otherwise. In earlier periods, Laura, which is your area in, in 18th century English mm. literature, what was a good death then? So there was a very lively culture of thinking about the good death. Um, and it may not accord with what we would imagine now. So often good deaths were performative, they were spectacles. You would expect to have people around your deathbed. You would expect 
or hope to express your final wishes, to show piety, to perhaps distribute some charitable um, donations or gifts, and for you to avoid delirium. Pain couldn't always be avoided and was more manageable. Delirium was seen as something problematic. Um, and to try and avoid violence and, and suddenness. But that idea of it being a deathbed scene is one that many people might now find difficult. And that's partly because our understandings about what the nature of privacy is or individual experiences has shifted. But there was also a philosophical, I suppose, period of transition, I would say, in the 18th century, between thinking about death as something that can be seen to complete a life such that you can understand it to culminate a person's achievement and therefore to be susceptible to a moral reading or increasingly the sense that perhaps death is incongruous, it's violent, it's jarring, it bears no relation to the life that went before it and might potentially actually have the capacity to do damage to an, a reputation or an experience of the life theretofore lived. And I work in a period where people are trying to juggle those two conceptions. The way that you die, in the sense of how you manage that, in a culture where it was harder to control the things that we'd now want to control, so harder to control pain, harder to control your environment, um, but it's possible in an ideal sense, to be able to manage yourself, to be mentally accommodated to the experience um, and to uh, be seen to fulfil the expectations of your belief and there were varieties of that. And does that resonate, Atif, with the Muslim tradition? Yes, um, it's interesting the uh, term a good death uh, actually uh, is uh, similar to a, a phrase in the Arabic language which is used in the prophetic hadith where the Prophet would encourage Muslims to pray for a good ending, husn khatima, like a beautiful ending even. Um, and so that's um, something there in the religious uh, literature. And I think the two aspects of that that come to mind when you know people have spoken about people um, dying well, should we, should we say, one is that there is uh, some form of control uh, over the moment of death, that it didn't happen suddenly or unexpectedly. Um, and then secondly, that somehow that person was uh, in a state of peace uh, when they passed away, which in religious terms might mean that they were in you know, some form of kind of personal devotion or uh, prayer. Um, but there is a sense of peace around that person as they are passing away. I was struck by um, uh, what uh, Mark was saying earlier that the good death for an individual may not be a good death for their family, you know. So, so something which might be quicker uh, for an individual and happen, um, you know, say within a day or so, it, you know, for the family that might be quite tough. It comes as a shock. A death, a good death for the family, which is, you know, maybe it happens over six weeks or so, and so the family has time to prepare for that psychologically, personally, maybe very hard for the individual. So I was struck by that contrast that you know Mark raised. Can I just add, that's borne out in the in the literature too. So there was a literature review in 2016 led by a team, um, led by Emily Mayer, and they tried to compare ideas about what a good death were between patients, family members and healthcare professionals. And they, whilst they found some p crossovers, they also found 
quite distinctive divergences, including, for example, families being more concerned with questions of dignity than patients themselves, um, which I thought was a really interesting one. Um, others, there was uh, points of points of comparison, so wanting to control the dying process, pain-free experiences or managed pain, but some differences too, and I think those can be really difficult conversations. You've presumably got experience of this where there may not be um, agreement or f- prior conversation about, about how to balance those differing views. I guess my, my entry point into that is, is, is often towards the end um, from, a, from a, a sacramental point of view. Indeed, the, the, who I was talking about Sunday, it was towards the end of his life. Um, there had been preparation, there had been other things happening around it. What was striking was the beauty of the compassion that the nurses gave to this chap who was on his own. Um, I would describe a, a phrase I used, there was an element of holding um, where he was held in their heart and mind. And I found that very powerful, uh, very moving. Um, I wrote about it later. Um, and I entered into that not knowing him with the sort of sense of being entrusted with the same holding so I, I get into those moments at the end. Sometimes with the sacrament, it's also to, to bring something together. I use, obviously, religious words a lot of the time. Um, I use the, the sacrament of anointing, um, which is, at some point, is it about belief, but it's more about love. There's a poetry about it. And sometimes the bringing of the love together where families hold uh, each other and, and their loved one um, with some religious words, but the words are about love can be a moment that en- enables somebody just to let go. I've, I've, <laughs> I mean, frequently, I've, it's only amen that somebody actually breathes their last, which I think is quite striking um, and quite a privilege to be part of. What do you think it is about a religious word like amen or letting go of a hand? Is it just a sort of... It's almost like I'm just about to uh, exhale <laughs> my breath. Is there something about that? Something is captured, and I don't think it's just the words... And most of our communication is without words, so it's something about what we bring and what we instill in that atmosphere by being together, by drawing that. Um, I'm a catalyst to perhaps bringing that together in those moments. And you see the, see the impact that has on the, those around. Um, and again, that's, there's, a, so there's a beauty to that. There's also a tension, though, isn't there, Mark, between the family and the person who's dying? Oh, there, there, there are examples of that. Maybe the tensions within the family come out. Um, it, it, it's one, one, one can't romanticise it. No, I never can. Then hmm. I, 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 you take what's there. Sometimes it is tension, which is released. Sometimes it's just the fact that they've had this moment which just encapsulates their, the whole of their lives. Um, and they're together and there's a letting go of of that person to regain them in another way because there's something very challenging about death in the sense that it's the most radically individual and private thing that can happen to a person in the sense of of course we must all die but that no one can experience somebody else's death for them and the brute fact is that they're dying on their own, even if there are people around them. So I presume there are ways in which we might try to ameliorate that or in some way to present a, a way of thinking that emphasises community and family and bonds that might continue after death. But it's certainly the case that 
part of the reason why people tell me that they're afraid of death is because it's a journey that you can never narrate to somebody else and that you must go on alone. And there's a terror in that for some people, even if they have a faith, actually. And does your work on the Good Life Project or a Good Life Project... Good death. Sorry? Good death. Did I say good life? Did yeah. I say? Um, and does your work uh, on the A Good Death Project... How does that help people narrate and navigate this mm. this process? So the premise for the project is that it's all good to suggest that there should be patient choice and autonomy and to emphasise the need for communication, but that actually you need to have vocabularies and conceptual frameworks or even images or th- thematic um, engagements with the idea of death to really to be able to do that properly and that the end of death, end of life, might not be the only moment to do that, that this is something that you can do while you're well or when you are diagnosed with a terminal condition. So we use literary texts, so short poems or prose extracts. We also use visual arts, so paintings. And we also use artefacts, so we collaborate with the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology to use objects from different cultures of the world to ask people to present to themselves different questions not necessarily what does death mean but just I wonder why in this object they chose to use feathers or Wordsworth has written a poem um, one of the Lucy poems in which he comments and she is now in her grave and oh the difference to me has prompted conversations around well who has the right to sort of claim the grief for somebody else if you see what I mean what do we do when we um, say that it's more affecting for us than for the person that's dying so things that you might not say directly to somebody if you were asking them about their own mother or sister or grandfather but that which you can explore through the medium of a of an art object or text because it provides a little bit of distance to allow you to think things that you wouldn't perhaps normally allow yourself to think do we do death better now than the text that you're looking at 200 years ago or do we struggle with the coming to terms with the language and, and talking through talking it through i mean it depends by what metric you you attempt to evaluate that so if you are primarily concerned with people not suffering pain then yes we're doing better if you're wondering whether or not people can die in a community or at home with their loved ones we're doing less well um there are ups and downs. I do think that we talk less openly about death than the periods that I study and that's because we're just less likely to die at any given moment. I think um, what prepares um, people for death in my own experience is, is the death of those around them and it makes them think and you know some people are, have the experience of lots of people in, you know, amongst families and relatives passing away you know, in their recent past, but some people have very little experience of that, and and then they really struggle when um, a parent or a close relative passes away, and they've not had any experience of death in the past five, ten years. Um, and part of that can also mean, you know, things like seeing the body itself, you know, after death, if uh, somebody's got to the age of forty or fifty and never seen a dead body, then actually seeing a dead body of somebody who you love for the first time can be very traumatic um, but for other people you know, if they've seen dead bodies and perhaps in the Muslim tradition washed one or two um, then that gives them a sense of um, 
being able to deal with the uh, matter of de- death and dying more than somebody who hasn't. You're listening to Naked Reflections, and with me this week are Laura Davis, Atif Imtiaz, and Mark Stobart. And we're discussing end of life, what makes a good death. I'd like to play you another clip from The Naked Scientists. This is Aubrey de Grey from the Song Research Foundation, a community based in France. You know, the body is fundamentally a machine. It's a really complicated machine, obviously, and it's taking time to figure out how it works well enough to be able to do preventative maintenance with the same level of effect that we can have with a car or an aeroplane. But the fact is, it's just kind of incoherent, non-scientific, magical thinking to suggest that there would be something there that we inherently couldn't fix. Mark? Yeah, just the idea of the body being a machine. Mm. Whereas, in fact, um, uh, if you look at, say, uh, some of the work done in neurobiology, they will talk about the embodied brain. So the body is the if the body is part of the brain, and and say so that the the the, the, the psyche of the soul is the processing of information. Um, it's, it's Daniel Siegel talks about this uh, as a neuro neuroscientist in America. Mm-hmm. But it's the whole idea of the body is not just a mechanism, but actually is is uh, is a, a housing for the brain. And that, 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 so I work in, as an embodied practitioner. When I'm working, I'm listening to my body as well. I'm going to throw in a, a slight curveball here. A lot of my work over 25 years of being a chaplain has been with pregnancy loss, perinatal loss. And, and, and you know, that is not good death. That is just catastrophic. Um, it's certainly catastrophic for the parents. And, and I'm not going to hide that. And I went into that with that knowledge. Not to make sense of it, but just somehow or other to be in the maelstrom, the storm of that, and face it with them. Um, and it, there is no making it good. People try, but actually the important job is to, to, to hold on and be a kind of, I just kind of uh, a sort of wilderness man, wilderness person guiding them in that. Um, so that, is it, that happens more often than we realise, but it's often hidden away. Um, and I can equate some of those things to the, the, you know, the number of times, the tragic, the awful that oh, this is shattering, making sense of, is nigh on impossible, but somehow or other being in the midst of is important for them. The sort of guide that does it, um, and that, that, so that, that, what makes is there a way of making that good? I don't think so. It's about making it less bad, maybe, and, <laughs> and sharing it with others. I mean, as you say, it's amazing how many times someone experiences something traumatic and then uh, someone else pops up and says, oh, I came across the same thing, or yeah, I experienced yeah, the same yeah, thing, or my mother yeah, experienced yeah, the same thing. Yeah. So one mum I looked after talked about it as being like a fiery ball that when it first happened, it just rolled around, scorching everything. And but she learned to balance it as if she was balancing it on a thimble, and it would it was precarious. And then slowly, as people came alongside her, it became an egg cup, and then a cup. And as she balanced it and put life around it, and it's interesting you've made a Freudian slip to say we talked about we we're talking about the good life, actually. And I thought mm, you should include that. Don't don't edit it out because it was a Freudian thing. And so you put more life around it. It's still a fiery ball but you can live by the warmth of it and the light of it, even if it's painful if you touch it. And philosophical texts can help you with that, right? So it's common 
in those circles to think about the difference between death as something that's imminent, as in on the horizon, something to which you are approaching, but also as immanent in the sense of the, 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 the basis of mortality being the possibility of life out of the possibility of death. And so that, if we were following metaphors of, of shape, means that you have to think about death as being part of, within the possibility of life, rather than as a far distant thing in the in the future. And I'm interested in how we can find a degree of peace through those kinds of mental imaginings, but I think also through vocabularies. So I know in the case of baby loss, mothers ask, what do I call myself? If I am a mother, I've given birth, but my child has died. And that they often express that they wish there was a word for that and that that would help so that they could name what it is. And sometimes religious traditions don't help actually there when, when a child dies at a very young age, whether they're actually defined as whether they're defined as a full human being. Um, well, in the Islamic tradition, um, children are regarded as having souls, which... Um, from birth? From birth, um, which um, will which are innocent and will go straight to heaven. Um, so they don't um, face any judgment in the hereafter. So that gives people a sense of comfort um, in, 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 the, in that kind of situation, but it's nevertheless you know, never easy. Um, I, have, I have a friend who you know, comes from a scholarly family, he's a scholar himself, and lives within the whole kind of religious world and religious imagination. And his, his mother passed away uh, recently, and um, it was a, a long illness, so he was prepared for her death. And uh, he um, spoke to me at the, you know, I went to see him, and uh, he said, you know, I, I don't have any feelings of sadness in the way that I thought I should or I might do. And he was kind of questioning himself, like, you know, how do I feel about my mother and why am I not crying like everybody else around me? You know, and I said, well, maybe because um, you're firmly immersed in this religious world that you see as a temporary thing that the death is just one step in the journey so you're not seeing it as like a permanent disconnection but some yes you are no longer connected with her here and now but in the background you have a sense of you'll be meeting her again and that gives you in the background of your imagination some comfort i'd like to push back a little bit sure. uh, on the sort of what might be perceived as sort of romanticized notion of sort of death and dying religious perspectives, because there is a tension between religious practice and belief uh, and the dying process. That questions over the definition of death. Um, medical death definition is different from a religious death definition. Uh, for example, the Muslim tradition, Jewish tradition as well, a quick death certificate to be buried as quickly as possible. And, and sometimes that's not understood in the hospital environment. So there are these, you know, there are serious tensions between religious belief and practice and the, 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 the dying. Yes, and it can be um, quite traumatic um, at the time of death itself. Um, because not only are these are there these religious traditions, but there's also family and social expectations. Um, you know, in the UK, the way migration has happened, um, Muslim communities will tend to have larger kind of related kinship networks around them. And if you're from a large kinship network and somebody, your know, mother or father, passes away, everybody in that kinship network wants to come to the funeral. And if the funeral is going to be today or tomorrow, they're ringing you, you know, on the same day, saying, what time is it? I have to be there. And, you know, they might be in the side of the country. At the same time, you're dealing with the hospital. You know, the hospital is saying, well, we can't issue a death certificate today. 
you know, we, it might be tomorrow, or, you know, circumstances are such, it might be, you know, after the weekend if it's on a Friday night. So it creates a very difficult, um, sometimes quite traumatic situation. And I think some of the NHS trusts and, you know, burial services have kind of developed uh, an understanding of making that smoother. But still, uh, I know of several instances where it hasn't quite worked out. And so not only is there a, you know, a death, but then there's also a very difficult social and family circumstance as well. Yeah. But where else are the tensions, Mark? You know, Liverpool Care Pathway, for example, has always been a, is a cause of some controversy. The question of end of life, you know, when to turn the machine off and the tension with religious belief there. I mean, how do you handle that sort of thing? Um, I don't think there's a tension between the religious belief side of it. Well, for example, turning a machine off, some, some practising, observant religious people find that very difficult. It's made it sound as if it's a, a, a very instantaneous thing. It's a very, very carefully worked out um, process. Um, the protocols for it include a lot of communication to make sure that actually we're not just, be- even before you've got there, um, and there's, there's, there's conversation with family, with sometimes with the patient, even before they might get to that point where their wishes are, are explored. I think the Liverpool Care Pathway ran into problems because people saw that as, as um, a way of, oh, well, they're just giving up. And that's not what it was about. It was about recognising that there was, a tra- there was a trajectory that had taken a different course. Sometimes it's the use of language, isn't yeah. it? What, what words you yeah. use. C- yeah. Certain words can be heard in, in, in ways. Yeah. So the palliative care doctor, uh, Dr Catherine Mannix, mm. has recently um, helped us all out, I think, with the phrase that she suggested is useful when you're having these difficult conversations, which is to say that to a patient that they're sick enough to die. Um, but that they can't be more certain than that. And I am wondering about this question of turning off machines mm. as perhaps being bound up with our un- how uncomfortable we are with the idea that death is both completely uncertain and could come upon us at any time and also the most certain thing there is in that it's completely inevitable. And there's something about managing that end-of-life moment by the by the idea of a switch and it's not really often just a single <laughs> switch but there's something about the mechanism of that i think that that unsettles um, people and maybe it's talking about the easing the dying process rather than ending the life right and if someone is sick enough to die what you're really talking about is what do we want to continue to do to prolong that state or to um prevent uh the death um, coming to its natural fruition. So it's a sort of a question of what we have been doing that we we may want to revisit rather than taking a decisive, um, terminatory, for want of a better word, action. I think in the Islamic tradition there is that, uh, that, that expectation that you can facilitate the death, easing the dying, rather than ending the life. Is that right, Hattie? Yes, and I think this is where you know medical advances have made um, decisions for... Um, families you know harder because the medicine now can you know keep people alive whereas 20 30 years ago it couldn't you know they would have said well that's it you know we you know we can't do anything more Mm. whereas now you know doctors are more likely to say well we can try this and we can try that and then that nearness to this is just elongated and i think most families of religious persuasion or otherwise um, are dependent upon the medical information that's provided to them by, by the doctors. 
Um, and it does be, get very tricky because, you know, they'll say, well, we can try, for example, if the patient's unconscious, we can try to resuscitate them. But we don't know if they'll come back and then in what state. And if they've had some kind of coma or some brain hemorrhage or something like that, we don't know how they'll come back. They might they might come back severely disabled, etc. And then you have to figure out, well, is this something that I want to agree to or I should agree to or I have to agree to? So I think the kind of medical advances of taking this into a situation is getting trickier and trickier for families. And actually the medical advances mean that we can more or less stay alive in some state for, if not forever, then for a, a real period of time, which raises the question of whether we want to be proactive in ending death, this question of, of euthanasia. I mean, in literature, of course, there is the heroic death, the, someone who jumps off the cliff, you know, because he's sort of, you know, uh, uh, his, his, his partner's died and he wants to end his life. Or, you know, there, there are... Uh, well, and it's often quite a gendered image, right? So it is. If you're going to stereotype, the men do that and the women die beautifully of TB. Yeah, <laughs> Coughing and becoming yeah. weaker and paler. I mean, oh, the, those are the Those are the stereotypes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, but it is an issue right now as well, you know, with uh, dignitas and questions over uh, ending life. Um, and religiously, of course, this is really tricky. There are religious figures who support that. I know a couple of bishops who do, and I don't know where, where Mark is, but where are you at if in this whole question of, and let's use that sort of problematic term, assisted dying? Yeah, I think um, right now, I think as far as I understand, majority of Muslim scholars would be against that. They would say that you can't um, uh, sign off you know, on your own life, so to speak. You don't have the authority. You don't have, yeah, because it's the body is a trust to you from God, and so while you remain healthy, you know, you should try as much oh, as you can to. That's that. Alive. Fair enough. If yeah. you remain healthy, but well, well, while you are, yeah, close to life in some way or another, uh, I think the issue is uh, if somebody else makes that decision, you know, on your behalf. I think that's when the do not resuscitate kind of question comes in. But I I think for individuals themselves, I think as far as I know, um, there's very few Muslim scholars who would say that it would be acceptable for somebody to um, take, you know, d- decide to have uh, take injections which would lead to them dying. I think that'd be Certainly difficult. there are a number of Jewish scholars who yeah. would, okay. would do that. There's right. a massive... Um, uh, division, of course, but there are some more of the sort of liberal reform rabbis who would, who would accept that. So our project determinedly takes no view publicly on this issue, um, but we do fundamentally think that it's precisely being better equipped to think through what you imagine death to be and to have means of doing that might help people in positions of feeling suicidal or considering this question mm. of, of assisted dying, just even at a sort of basic level of, well, do you consider death to be some kind of threshold across which you're crossing and wh- where do you think you're crossing? Do you really just want to, in fact, not be in pain, physical or mental? And are you imagining death as some kind of sleep? Your family might imagine death as a kind of loss or a, a taking away. Um as I say, we don't want to tell people ever what to do or what the right answer is, but I definitely think that there are, there's ways to open up people's thinking about what it might be that they think they're doing. Mm. Well, I think I'm going to have to bring this podcast to an end. Thanks to my guests, Laura Davis, Atif Imtiaz and Mark Stobert. And thanks to you for listening. 
If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time when we'll be talking about childhood. When I was a child, I thought like a child. <laughs>